Humankind is not appreciably different today than we were 6,000 years ago, if, in fact, we are any different at all. Only our knowledge base and technology have increased, but we are no better, no more intelligent, no more civilized, no less violent, no wiser, and certainly no more evolved. Any statement to the contrary only underscores our ignorance and our arrogance. Hello, and welcome to Dystopian Deep Dives with your host, Natalie Donna. Today I'm speaking with Gary Wayne. He is the author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. We'll be talking about the Knights Templar, their connection to Hitler, and other things. Stay tuned for an interesting episode. Hi, Gary. Thank you for joining me. You've written a book about the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Can you briefly tell us what the Genesis uh, 6 Conspiracy is? Yeah, when I talk about the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, what I'm referencing is the aftermath and sort of the fallout of the Angelic Rebellion that unfolds into Genesis 6 with the creation of the Nephilim or the giants, as the King James Version would Mm -hmm. phrase it, with giants going back to the word Nephil and the I am being the male plural. Mm -hmm. And the partnership between the angels, the descendants of Cain, and the creation of the mystical religions and the secret societies Mm -hmm. that all come together to usurp the kingships before the flood. Right. And enslave humankind and leave the world into apocalypse and then reoccurs again after the flood and has been going on ever since and is really the essence of what's going to bring about the end time. Right. Um, So is this, do you think that's why uh, prehistory has been so hidden from us? Yeah, I, I think that's correct. I think a lot of the information has been held from us and it's been controlled. Controlled. And it's been controlled by not just one organization or sort of one side of it, although I guess you could argue they're, they're hiding the information. It's all directionally causing the same sort of deceptions. But you've got in the modern era, you have the Gnostics and mm-hmm. the secret societies that are collecting all of this information mm-hmm. and using it for their own control and timing in terms of how they want to release that kind of information. Mm-hmm. You also have the Vatican that's been collecting the same kind of information for the last 2,000 years. And again, I think they are using that to control uh, the information and to maintain power as well. And I also think that there's been a corruption ongoing with the Catholic Church that will come to a level that, you know, will absolutely astonish people in the, in the end time as we, you know, get ready for all of the deceptions that are coming. So I think it's mm. about controlling that information so that they can prepare humankind to receive the information in the format and the way that they want so that they can bring about Antichrist. Hmm. And so how do the Knights Templar figure into this narrative? Yeah, that's a really good question. And when I talk about it, secret societies you know let me just sort of premise that the templars are a secret society Mm -hmm. and that secret societies have their beginning in genesis Mm -hmm. and in fact freemasonry which is the modern form they would be better called masons which is more their ancient form 
And the Masons take their history back to the patriarchs of the Cainite line, which they tend to also conflate with the uh, Sethian line, because the names are very, very similar, and there's identical names in each. So when I talk about Enoch, we need to, you know, I want people to understand that there are two Enochs. Mm -hmm. One is the son of Cain, one is the son of Jared. And they both write scripture, they both have a significant influence on prehistory, and Enoch, son of Cain, is one of the great patriarchs of masonry and splits the seven the the knowledge that adam learned and taught to cain mm -hmm. and also taught to uh seth later on but cain takes that knowledge towards evil and corrupts that information enoch his first son he separates it into the seven sacred sciences as they called it in in ancientology and that's the knowledge that will then marriage in the time of the creation of the giants with the knowledge that comes from the fallen angels that's going to propel and accelerate the antediluvian world into apocalypse. So right. now that I sort of put that on the table, let's look at the Knights Templar. And the common story with the Knights Templar is that, you know, there are these, these poor monks that form this... Uh, ascetic type of knighthood that is going to protect pilgrims on the way to pilgrimage to Jerusalem because the Crusaders had just recently taken a Jerusalem back from mm -hmm. the Muslims and the Templars and the original founders were kind of part of that whole uh, process and crusade that's going on. The thing is, though, is that the members of the Knights Templars aren't poor knights. And the Templars are going to be the modern sort of genesis or naissance to uh, secret societies as we would understand all of them today. So they're a very, very mm. important organization. And so when I took look at, uh, and I'll name just a few of them here, we won't go through every one of them and their connections, but they're either sons of kings or they're still within the elite and for the most part, further down siblings uh, or offspring of the kings who are going to become part of the religious class and, and monks and usually mm. monastic, uh, monastic uh, orders. And so you've got people like uh, Godfrey de Bouillon, Hugh de Payon, for example, who are the probably the two most prominent members of the founders of the Knights Templar, um, as well as one that a fellow that's named because his name is so so famous is going to be the folk of Anjou. And these three have kingships in the Lorraine region. So they're all relatively close together and very tightly related and all claim bloodlines back to the Merovingian mm. bloodline mm -hmm. and to the last survivor of the Merovingians who uh, was Dagobert. And, of course, those bloodlines go back into prehistory and with several different graftings in, the most notorious would be the grafting in of the, well, the original bloodlines of the, of the Nephilim with Judaic bloodlines and uh, being grafted in afterwards. So you have these people that are forming this organization, and they were all Masons. Mm -hmm. Because if you're going to understand secret societies, 
you need to understand that the the aspect of the mystical religion, which is the Gnostic religion that they hold, and that the bloodlines are at the upper end of the hierarchy of the secret societies. Hmm. So when you understand that, that sort of begins the modern secret society organizational structure that we know of it in the West, and we understand that they were royal bloodlines and that they were uh, Masons already at depth level that are forming this organization. And then they're going to be funded and by the royal families who are, of course, of the same Gnostic belief system, which would be, you know, at that time would be more commonly called the uh, uh, the Cathars and mm -hmm. the Albigensians, mm -hmm. which were two sister religions of Gnosticism that was rivaling the Catholic uh, and the Roman Church for dominance at, at that time. And so you have uh, the Cistercians, which is one of these monastic orders, orders that are going to be a significant sponsor for the Knights Templar and the writing of their charter. And St. Bernard is the most famous of those Cistercian mm -hmm. Benedictine monks who actually uh, argues in favor of the papal bull to form the Knights Templar and give them the power that they have initially, but also is the one who helps write their uh, doctrine and their constitution. Right. So you have, again, these Gnostic orders that are molded into Catholicism that are there to build churches, and that's how they find a way to hide and be useful within the church, but secretly they work, just as the Templars did, they worship polytheism and a pantheon of gods at the adept level. Right. You were just talking about their constitution. Um, what do they believe in? What are some of the tenets of their constitution, if you're familiar enough with it? Well, it's, it's typical Gnosticism. And mm -hmm. so when you understand that you have the Albigensians and the Cathars that are writing uh, the Constitution, you'll understand that you're going to get that Gnostic sort of language that is in there, like the Perfecti, for example, yeah, which is the adapt level. And so one of the key things that's in there, other than I'll talk about Gnosticism in a second, but in Article 4 and 18 of the Secret Rule of the Order, as set down by the Master uh, Ronsolin, uh, is, you know, lays it out quite clearly that the ultimate goal of the Knights Templar is to establish the new Babylon mm. in, in, within the Roman Church and to establish a universal religion through that church. And that's what they're trying to do within the Catholic Church when the Templars are formed. So the Gnostics are a polytheist religion. They believe in a pantheon of gods, and if you look at who the Templars were worshipping in secret, that would be Baphomet or Baphomet, as mm. I would pronounce it, because it's only a single T and there's no E on the end. Uh, and that's a goat god. Right. And, and you say that the goat, the goat god, gods are coming from the fall of the seraphim, right? Like after yeah, that's the... how I would... Mm -hmm. That's how I would understand it. You know, we get Satyr, which is where the goat god, uh, you know, comes from, and the devil gods coming out of uh, out of the Bible, and they all go back to uh, Satyr. And 
What that is is not you know not only is it described as a goat god when you take that back to Hebrew, but you have a degradation that goes on of the impassioned angels for sure, and probably all of the fallen angels, and a separation. Some go to the abyss, like Azazel does, as the leader of the of the of the Seraphim Watchers, and then some who are still out there who are roaming around and deceiving humankind. But when you get depictions in the occult of Azazel, he's depicted as a goat god, mm. but yet he was a watcher. And the watchers were, as I said, seraphim angels that are recorded in Isaiah 6, which have a serpent face, not a goat face. Mm -hmm. And these are the same watchers recorded three times in Daniel 4 that have a commission from the throne for governance, and these are the same watchers, seraphim angels, that have minister duties before the altar and within the fiery stones before God. And the Gnostics does also describe these watchers as seraphim and, mm. uh, you know, sons of God and, and, uh, and angels and with that serpentine look. And so you get sort of confirmation from both sides that they were serpentine. But yet Azazel somehow transforms into a goat god, just as you have a second goat that is sacrificed on the Day of Atonement in, in Leviticus 16 in the King James Version Bible. And that's where scapegoat goes back to Azazel, which is recorded in some of the other English translations as such. And again, that's probably for the sins of the antediluvian world because, because Azazel is the scapegoat for all of the sins of the antediluvian world and is blamed for you know, bringing the antediluvian world to its knees in, in the book of Enoch and teaching the world not only war but making the weapons of war and the tactics of war and all of the martial arts to go with it. So he's, he's kind mm -hmm. of the destroyer god of the anti-Lumen world who gets blamed for the most part as a, as, as a scapegoat. But yet, he wasn't originally that way, and yet he's worshipped as that. And you have these other gods that show up that have sexual connotations and mythologies about that show up that are more, I would say, after the flood, post-Diluvian in their dating than before the flood, which you know, happens with the watchers on Mount Hermon and probably other creations of Nephilim type creatures after that, but still before the flood. So you get gods like uh, Bacchus out of the Roman pantheon or Sunonus uh, out of the uh, English pantheon or CERN, which is another form of Sununus, and the Pan god, which is the most famous one out of Greek mythology. And, you know, you have that pan temple at Caesar Philippi, right, on the foot of, of, of Mount Hermon. And you also have Raphaim that show up after the flood. So one wonders whether or not these post-Diluvian accounts of these gods are more the second incursion of these giants after the flood to recreate the giants. And they're all degraded to these goat gods from where they came, just as Satan would have been reduced as from cherubim and seraphim down to Satan's status. So I think yeah. that's probably 
where you get the root of the sort of the god is that degradation of the seraphim watchers. Interesting. Um, well, the reason I became interested in the Knights Templar was because of possible connections to uh, Nazis and Nazism. There's a lot of sort of overlap. We have like the symbol of the Red Cross, uh, for example. Do you notice an overlap there? You do speak a bit about um, Nazism in your book. Um, are, is there a direct connection? Some people think that uh, uh, the Knights Templar, after they sort of dispersed, um, part of them went to Switzerland, and part of the money that funded uh, Hitler uh, was uh, from this Swiss faction of the disbanded sort of Knights Templar. Do you know anything about that theory? Well, there, yeah, there's a number of connections, and you've touched on a, a number of things, and I'll just sort of try and walk through that as simply <laughs> as possible, because this thing has about a thousand different doors you could open in, in right. terms of talking and connecting those knots. So the first thing that somebody needs to understand is there was more than one knight order that was quite famous and powerful um, at that time, and some of those even continue to this day. So you actually had an order that was created before the Templars in about 10, uh, 740, 1040 AD uh, with the Knights of St. John, and they're mm -hmm. going to take their name after John the Baptist, whom they're going to adopt as, a, as an Essene, which is sort of the, uh, again, the naissance of the monastic orders for polytheism in the West that will um, take their rituals into the Masonic societies. And then also when uh, they're being persecuted, the Gnostic and polytheist sects by Catholicism will mold into the Catholic Church, which are, you know, part of the same orders like the Calabrian monks um, and the Cistercians and all of those specific orders that were formed back then that were sort of helping form the Knights Templar. But the Knights of St. John is another order that is created before the Knights Templar is created. Um, and they first start off as, you know, setting up hospitals and things like that. But then they transform into the ones who were truly protecting the pilgrims that are traveling to Jerusalem on their pilgrimage. And so the, the Templars are set up with this rouge and a, mm -hmm. a sort of a cover that that's what they're doing. But it's the Knights of St. John that are doing it. And I'm going to come back to them in a second. And then you also have another order that is the Teutonic Knights. And so you have a red cross that St. Bernard issues mm -hmm. Templars that is a sort of uh, legacy a symbol that goes into history of, of Red Cross orders. You have the Knights of St. John that is going to take the White Cross that is going to have become the symbol of the Swiss flag. And I'll come back to that in a second. And then you have the Black Cross of the Teutonic Order. So, in the year 1310, the Hospitallers or the Knights of St. John, or the Knights of Malta. They changed their names over the centuries, but it's the same organization, who are also made up of royal bloodlines, but of secondary siblings. What they have to be to be running and controlling the Knights of St. John, you have to be of very high noble bloodlines, but you're just not the first son. But in 1310, they actually established their first uh, commander or 
station or uh, you know establishment in Switzerland. And what's interesting about 1310 is that that is three years after the fall of the of the uh, Knights Templar in 1307. Mm. And so what happens at the fall of Templars is that you have uh, Templars that are going to scramble over into the Teutonic Knights, which is the German Norse uh, sort of aspect of the Knight Orders. And you're going to have the Templars that are going to go to Scotland that are going to be protected by Robert the Bruce and the Sinclairs. The Sinclairs are the individuals that uh, are going to sponsor uh, the new Freemasonry organization from many of the adepts, including, uh, you know, including Dumont, the first uh, Grand Master of the Knights Templar, after their fall, uh, as they continue, and they're going to form the Freemasonry organization. And you're going to have Templars that are going to flee into other orders that are down in Portugal and Spain, which is you know very, very important in, in Templar history. And you're going to have their wealth split up into several different directions. So you're going to have their wealth that's going to go with Dumont over to Scotland, and then who knows where after that you're going to have wealth that is going to be confiscated by the Montessa order, which is created um, in 1317. Um, to uh, in Portugal for one by King Denis to take control over the Templar assets there and you're also going to have uh, that's the order of Christ and then you're going to have the Montessa order uh, by King James II who's going to take over the Templar assets there but the bulk of the money and the wealth goes over to Switzerland mm -hmm. where that's going to be protected by their sister Gnostic Brotherhood of Knights, which is the Knights of St. John, and that's going to be the naissance or the beginning of the Swiss banking. Mm -hmm. People think that it starts up in the 17 or 1800s. That's where it starts. The Teutonic Knights have more of a Pan-Aryan mm -hmm. ideology to it, and that's overlaid again by the Gnostics that... Uh, Hitler picks up on, and he's going to actually establish the SS as based on this Teutonic order, but with this Pan-Aryan philosophy and real ideology of something in the blood. And that's where the SS is going to come from. Now, the right. banking that funds that funds uh, Nazi Germany is going to come from, obviously, the bankers, which are you know largely controlled outside the Vatican Church by the Rothschilds, and the Rothschilds are formed from the banking to replace the banking arm that was controlled by the Templars because they invented modern banking in the West. And so when they collapsed, uh, outside the Church, the secret societies wanted to have control of the banking system. The Bauer family, which is the Rothschilds family, and that's going to be largely the banking system and their stable of agent bankers that are going to fund the Nazis 
to take on the communists who they funded previous to that, who got out of control, went out of control and went rogue, just as the Nazis would go rogue on them, and then they fund the Allies to defeat both of them. Mm -hmm. But of course, they don't, you know, continue on with with the, with the communists. So that's kind of the broader connections. But I'm sure you got a thousand questions based on that set of information. I mean, I guess it's just really interesting because you see Himmler, you know, you're talking about this sort of uh, creation of this myth of the German people being connected to these ancient peoples so that they can claim that they are, you know, of some sort of uh, pure bloodline, um, you know, to sort of excuse genocide, yeah. Um, and I think it's actually really interesting that most people think that the Rothschilds are relatively like an old family, but you say that they're actually newcomers in the whole grand scheme of things because we we have to go all the way back to, I suppose, like Nimrod or, or something like this uh, when we talk about uh, Freemasonry. I think it's really interesting when, when uh, regimes sort of take on these uh, occultic kinds of... Uh, narratives for lack of a better term and one of the things they do is they they use a lot of ritual and uh we see a lot of rituals being performed today to usher in something like the new normal right like uh, mandated mask wearing so what was the importance of ritual to the knights templar uh what were some of the rituals they may have participated in um if you know of any uh, you mentioned some others in a different interview, um, but and what is the importance of ritual to to the Gnostic uh, beliefs, and why why do we see these play out in popular culture all the time? I know that's a lot of questions, but I feel like you can do a lot with what I just said. So, in polytheism, one of their main characteristics are rituals and allegories, which is you know pretty predominant as as you look at secret societies, because they are of the same root and of the same sort of religion, particularly as Gnosticism or Theosophy, um, you know, are the two religions of the modern era for the, for the secret societies. That goes back to the original religions of Nimrod, as you were mentioning, and mm -hmm. to the Antediluvian past. And they are knowledge cults. So they're always after gnosis and knowledge, and they believe that the two keys to immortality or attaining godhood is one is you know having immortality, and the other one is controlling knowledge, and so mm. you have to have enough knowledge and to be taught this knowledge in the mysteries, and so you have these degrees that you go through. The old system, you know, most people are familiar of uh, three degrees. And with right. the Scottish right, which is more recent, would be 33 degrees, but that's just splitting the original three into, you know, 11 different sort of steps. And so uh, this is the knowledge that they're learning to become an adept. And then there are higher degrees after that. Mm. Uh, it's hard to know how many. And so this information is taught in rituals, in allegories to protect that information from the mundane, as they would call it, from people who um, aren't part of the bloodlines and uh, they don't want them to have that information, which is why they're called secret societies. They want to keep their information secret. Right. And it's to honor their history and to honor their genealogies and to honor their gods. So mm. rituals are designed to uh, do that. Originally, 
when you have Adam and Eve, and then you have the Seth line. You don't have any of this uh, rituals that's entering into the worship and in, in monotheism. And even when Israel is set up, they are only given a very limited amount of things uh, to be done for atonement and for worshiping him and things like, you know, long sort of rituals and allegories and mysteries and carving of stones and idolatry. All of that is, you know, forbidden. And it does come back in when you have the formation of the Roman church uh, at the time of Constantine, because I think there's emerging emerging of Mithraism and some other uh, Gnostic religions at that time, because it's it's a religion that's designed to unite the empire under Constantine's rules. So it's, it has some polytheist uh, overlays on it, and we you know we still have some of that idolatry and imagery even to this day, mm-hmm. you know, including changing the Sabbath. So, um, but rituals that are done at the lower level are you know giving pieces of the information. You're not give, you're not provided the true knowledge until you hit a debt status and you're not doing the true uh, rituals of worship that would include sacrifice of, and drinking of blood and things like that at the adept level. So mm. only as you get to the third degree in the old York Rite system and 33rd degree of the Scottish Rite are you going to be uh, involved in that. You're going to have a lot of sexual rituals that mm. are involved as well. So. And all of this has its history in polytheism past because they believe they are the original religion and that monotheism went rogue and is a counterfeit religion of their original religion. So you can see they're absolutely poles apart from from monotheism just from their perspective. And each other calls each, you know, each other the dark ones and each one calls themselves the children of light or the mm-hmm. people of light and so they are, you know, they're never going to to uh, sort of peacefully coexist because they're totally opposite. But which is part of the the belief system of Gnosticism and polytheism is is that good and evil are always uh, and perpetually at war. And nobody ever wins. In mm. monotheism, we do get a winner, um, and that happens at the in the end time. But in the meantime. You know, you've got these two sort of forces that are controlling and manipulating humankind, um, and it's going to play out until the end time comes. So hopefully that gives you an idea of what you're asking about in terms of the rituals, why they have the rituals, Mm -hmm. and what the religion is all about. Yeah, I think that was really helpful. Um, So speaking of, like, sort of ritualistic imagery and paying homage to the gods that they may believe in. Um, in popular culture lately, we've seen a lot of flood imagery, a lot of water and umbrellas and rain. Um, do you think this could be an allusion to Atlantis? And why is Atlantis important? Well, I think it is. I mean, the flood is a significant piece of polytheist uh, religions as well. And, you know, you were mentioning earlier, and it's true that you have the flood story and the giant story that is, you know, for the most part connected together uh, and you have the giants are the ones who are causing the flood and that's on all continents around the world except Antarctica and who knows what we'll find there soon mm. and you have the flood that is you know uh, 
basically attributed, according to the Gnostics, as being caused by the God of the Bible, and he is the evil God. And yeah. it's part of what he does to uh, hurt humankind, whereas the uh, Gnostics like to call themselves the ones who are providing knowledge and trying to help humankind against the oppressive uh, God of the Bible. Right. So when you have that imagery of the flood, that's a huge sort of... Uh, historical turning point for both monotheists and Gnostics. They just have two lenses in terms of how they're going to view who was good, who was bad, and what, what that outcome kind of looked like. And so when we look at um, how they want people to view the flood and the separation and then what happened before the flood, that's the golden age. That's the age that Atlantis reigned in. Yeah. And understand that the Nazis that we were talking about take their belief system back to very much an Atlantis kind of mm -hmm. island called Thule uh, and or Asgard from the north side because they're, they're kind of inter, interrelated. And they could be parts of the Atlantean Empire or they could be a separate civilization altogether, but it sounds very, very similar to Atlantis. And this was... Uh, both Thule and Atlantis were reigned over by the giants, by mm -hmm. the Nephilim before the flood. And they created this great civilization. And I'll slide more now over to uh, Atlantis, but just underline that that real ideology, which is Rosicrucian ideology, which was overlaid into theosophy, which morphed mm -hmm. into Ariosophy, is that something in the blood that they take their genealogies back to these giants of prehistory. Mm. And Atlantis had 10 parts to its empire, all ruled over by Nephilim and all as the offspring of Poseidon and uh, Clyto, or climbing, depending on which version that you're reading, and or Iapetus as, as the god. But he's the god of the sea, and he produces 10 demigod titans kings. These are the heroes of Greek mythology. These are the Nephilim. So as Zeus would have been the uh, father of Hercules through a human female, um, that would be the same as what Poseidon is doing here in creating through mm -hmm. human females these demigod kings. And this was the ultimate civilization in the antediluvian world, Atlantis, ruled by demigods. Demigods defined in its ancient sense as the offspring of gods and human females. So just right. as Genesis 6, 1 through 4 talks about, Poseidon is giving a polytheist account of what's going on in before the flood. And Atlantis is trying to take over the whole world. Right. Wants to set up a world government with its polytheist religion. Mm -hmm. And this is the new Atlantis that Francis Bacon uses as an allegory for the end time with the religion of theosophy that comes out of Gnosticism, designed to be the religion that works in harmony with uh, knowledge, works in harmony with the religion in the end time and is ruled over by this polytheist religion and reigned over by descendants out of, out of Atlantis. Right. And so when we look at what the Club of Rome is doing today, sort of roll this forward, uh, they're formed in 1968, uh, maybe 1967, but 67 to 69 is the formation. And they come into sort of full view more in the 70s. And they have divided the world into 10 
mm-hmm. blocks of nations, trading blocks, groups of nations, whatever you want to call them, that they want to form this world government on that they call the new Atlantis or the new age and the new golden age that uh, is being promised through new age, which is an extend, an extension out of theosophy, which was created by Gnosticism. Yeah, so like with, uh, and you have theosophy being sort of, I guess, told to us is created by Blavsky in about the 1880s. But as I said, it's, it's really just a repackaged uh, form of Gnosticism. Right. But it's this theosophy that is gaining very, you know, a lot of momentum uh, going into the 1900s right. that the Nazis are going to adopt. But they're going to overlay on theosophy their Aryan philosophy. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's why they call it Ariosophy, which kind of goes rogue from Theosophy, and and also overlays the real ideology and mm-hmm. Grail ideology, and with that distinct Pan Aryan type of uh, overlay is going to be uh, very much opposed to who they would presume to be the descendants of Israel, which would be the Jewish people, and that's why mm-hmm. they're going to. Um, have a holocaust because they're at war uh, with God's people and they're trying to create the new Reich, the new thousand year reign that Hitler wants to be like a messiah type figure over. So they create this aerosophical religion as they called it, uh, that's all occult and they call it the Reich Church in 1933 and of course Wagner who is a big proponent of providing a lot of the intellectual dynamite for the grail ideology that is adopted into Nazism. Hitler's going to listen to and watch uh, a Wagner uh, opera before he establishes the Reich Church and Mm. so this is that whole belief system that they're trying to reestablish that they say would be that antediluvian religion and reestablishing that golden age or the new Atlantis. Hmm. Yeah, they were searching for Atlantis, I believe, at some point, or the Spear of Destiny as well. They were, I mean, just like any other society that you've mentioned, were collecting artifacts uh, just as the Templars were. I believe that's probably what their actual mission was to collect these artifacts uh, and to keep them somewhere. Um, And it's really interesting because these societies have been working on this project for quite a while, it seems. Why has it taken so long? I think we've seen a lot of the effects now, recently. You know, when we talk about the quest for um, sort of the fountain of youth or uh, immortality, we can sort of see that in transhumanism, if you're familiar with that kind of ideology. Um, So I don't know. I'm not sure why it's taken so long. Is it just because they keep failing? Is it because egomaniacs like Hitler think that they're the Messiah? Um, Or is it just predestined to take a certain number of years for everything to kind of come to a head? Well, both. I mean, so the first thing is that uh, I'll say that there is a set amount of time that only God knows mm-hmm. to fulfill the names of the book of life that was written before creation. So, and mm-hmm. the end time is not going to happen before God removes the restrainer. So now enter into the aspect that the occult forces want to bring about the end time any time before the ordained time mm-hmm. to try and discredit God and add to the deception. 
so, but they'll accept the ordained time, of course, because they, they want to bring on the end time and have that showdown with God. But within the organizational structure, not only in the West, but around the world, they are directionally working in the same direction, but you have rival factions. Mm -hmm. And at the end, and I don't know whether you've ever seen that, uh, those uh, movies or TV series that was called Highlander, which was sort of a fairy <laughs> aspect to the Nephilim, that there can only be one. Right. At the end, that's, that's really what's being fought out between all of these thrones and Game of Thrones would be another right. allegory of that, uh, where there can only be one messiah, one false messiah, mm. one antichrist family that is going to be set up to rule the world and their family will be in their belief system that um, one set above all the other Nephilim bloodlines even though they'll be part of the ruling elite, there's still only one at the top. So they're all fighting to mm. be that family. Yeah, I mean, it, it keeps and happening. So, like Hitler or uh, like Aleister Crowley would call himself the Antichrist. Um, so I just, it's kind of interesting, like that they're competing to to bring that about. And speaking of popular culture. I heard you mention something about Star Wars, and I thought that was really interesting. And I wanted to ask you how Star Wars is based in either Gnosticism or, I guess, Rosicrucian philosophy. Yeah, I mean, I would preface the, uh, what I'm going to talk about is that almost all of our science fiction, horror, and mm -hmm. entertainment, literature, movie-wise, uh, opera-wise, you know, anything that's got to do with entertainment basically runs with that sort of uh, understanding. So and Star Wars makes a fairly easy analogy as to uh, what I'm talking about. And so you have two, two forces. One's the good force, one's the evil force, and it's playing out through the humans right. um, who are in the physical world, right? Mm -hmm. And so the good guys are the ones who are very much like uh, an Eastern Vedic religion or Tibetan religion, and those are the members of the Jedi who are have a bloodline and a powerful uh, source and power that is not equated to the average uh, human, but mm -hmm. just the bloodlines, right? right? So again, you can see that royal bloodline sort of issue. And then you have the Eastern religion, um, that is basically what's talked about, just as you have the good force and the evil force, is that duality mm -hmm. of good and evil that are in uh, perpetual uh, combat, and none ever really gains the upper hand, just as the Star Wars continues forever, because that's the nature of the religion, mm -hmm. and that they'll always be fighting each other out. And, of course, you have within Star Wars characters that are modeled on prehistory. So, I mean, you have uh, Luke Skywalker. And, uh, you know, Skywalker is, you know, uh, you know, pretty easy understanding of that's talking about an alien or something from another planet or an mm -hmm. angel. And 
it was not originally Luke. It was actually Loki Skywalker from the wow. Norse pantheon. <laughs> really? <laughs> and so they just transliterated that. And huh. then you have, um, you know, Anakim, which is, you know, the comes from the Raphaim tribe of the Anak that are after the flood. And so this thing just sort of goes... If, if you just look at all of the different names and all of the different references that they have, um, it is just loaded with that historical genealogy and belief system and history uh, that is typical of most entertainment because they hide that within the allegories. And that makes sense mm -hmm. because that's what the religion is built on. And they're trying to keep that information from the mundane. But those people who are watching the entertainment, who have been taught through the mysteries, they understand the language and exactly the, the messages that are, that are being communicated. Yeah. Um, can you briefly explain what you call the alien deception? Yeah, it's, you know, it's something that we have to take seriously. Mm-hmm. And we have to understand that there's way too much going on here for it not to be used as a deception for the end time or a way of moving people in a manner to prepare them for things that they want us to accept. When you have that much information on it, and they seem to be marching towards this uh, unveiling and introduction of them that will unite people just as in all the movies where we find out we're not alone on the earth that everybody comes together and they get their one world government right and they need that to uh, have their world religion and to evolve into godhoods in the new ages as the as the uh, belief system goes mm -hmm. um, this is what is going to be happening in the end time in a number of different ways but I don't believe these aliens are going to be from another planet. I actually think we're going to see them, and I think that we're just going to be lied to as to who, who they are. So a lot of people in, in Christianity just think it's demons and it's hmm. uh, fallen angels. And you know, the demons, of course, are going to need a body. Okay, but Angels are shapeshifters. Demons are bodiless spirits of the giants. Mm, so okay, right. immortality was taken away. Their bodies weren't permitted to go to sleep, according to Enoch. And they weren't permitted to go into heaven, and they roamed the earth. And these are the demons and the evil spirits Jesus is dealing with. And Legion would be the most important ones. And as he says, they thirst. They go to dry places, and they're like they're thirsting for a body to possess, so that they can actually interact and have a little bit oh, of rest. Okay, I see. In, in in a physical form, so I don't think it's the demons, unless for somehow, some way, they've been given bodies that you know they can actually enter into, and it won't be this. Uh, uh, contested relationship that happens in demon possession. It's not mm. an avatar effect. It's you know, that's why you get head spinning and right. things like that because the host isn't, um, you know, wanting that have that demon spirit in. So, I think they're gonna. I think those bodiless spirits will play an end in the end time. But from the shape shifting capability, I would look at that from the angels. But they also created according to the occult belief system, all of these other different creatures mm. in prehistory. And in their tradition, they survive. 
and right. uh, or or perhaps even recreated again after the, the flood. So you have, I mean, not only the the centaurs and Pegasus and all of these other beings that are out there, but also uh, beings like uh, the elementals, which are part of the fairy, they're the fourth class of the fairies, mm -hmm. and these are these are the little people. Right, and uh, they have three different classifications of those, and in, in the ugly class, which are gnomes and hobbits and dwarves and things like that, you've got one that is called the gray neighbors or the greys, and mm -hmm. they have flying machines, and they come through fairy mounds or portals, and they yep. kidnap people. And I put in my book a couple of descriptions of, of those encounters and those kidnappings. And if you didn't know I was describing a fairy kidnapping and encounter, you'd swear it was an, an alien gray. Right. I mean, there and has been. A... Oh, go ahead, Gary. I was going to say then there's also a fourth class that is a lot of times grouped in the elementals. They're higher than the elementals, which are the lowest class because they serve the gods and the Nephilim. Uh, guarding the genealogies, guarding the technology, and making weapons and all sorts of things, just as you see them in the Lord of the Rings. Mm. But they're working for the giants and the gods. And there's a fourth class that is a little bit higher, and that's called the salamanders. And they're, they're, they're reptilian. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm. I think that's where we get kind of that reptilian alien coming from right. or... Uh, I know they and I, and I have to say for the record that I think the uh, original Nephilim from the Seraphim Watchers had the same serpent faces as well, and that's mm. a part of the reptilian serpent seed uh, part of Genesis three fifteen. But we also have another classification of individual that's called the Nakash. That before it was stripped of its intelligence, its speech, its arms, and its legs was an intelligent, walking, talking human being or human-like being that is uh, working with Satan to deceive Adam and Eve in, in Eden. Mm. And if if they were able to save uh, some of these other beings, either off-world, in the earth, however you want to have it, in stasis, uh, or recreated them again in a second incursion, which, again, those angels would have gone to the abyss for that second crime, and I lean to second incursion, then you would have these beings that are in coming through portals from different dimensions that seemingly the alien spaceships yeah. that we see yeah. all come through different dimensions, uh, which makes sense. Um, and I think we're being told they're from other planets as part of the deception, as opposed to part of the original rebellion and the Nephilim-like creations that were created both before and after the flood. That's really interesting. And I mean, there have been a lot of, not a lot of books, but there have been some books written about uh, the uh, parallels between alien abduction and fairy abduction and uh, folklore. And uh, I think it's really interesting that there's an overlap there. Uh, personally, uh, just to set the record straight, I don't think there are aliens. <laughs> But that's that's just me. Um, and I think it's very interesting that they're using a lot of this propaganda, I think, especially at this time, I believe, to distract people from, you know, real other agendas that are more um, pressing. So I'll leave you with this final question. 
Um, is the West the good knight uh, bringing democracy to the world and what they call fighting the good fight? Or is it an allegory for the inverse, which I find a lot of Nazism to sort of just be, they just flip everything over onto the inverse? Um, or like a bad guy ushering in the New World Order, just as the Knights Templar uh, sought out to do. Like, I find that to be very interesting, this sort of image that the West wants to um, portray itself as. I'm not even saying that the West is bad or good. It's just, um, let's talk about America specifically. You know, they always portray themselves as like the good guys bringing in democracy. Yeah. Well, let's first understand that most constitutions that are, we have in the world today are based on the American Constitution mm -hmm. and the American Revolution. And then let's also introduce the idea that well over half of the original writers of the Constitution and the founding fathers of the United States were Masonic and Gnostic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what they wrote into the Constitution was more to protect the Gnostic religion from persecution of the Roman Church mm. than to protect Christian religions. But in a way, I think that they could use that against uh, Christians in the end time, which I think we're starting to see the Constitution being used to promote uh, Christian belief and talk as, as hate speech and right. all sorts of horrible things. So I think we're starting to see that, that transition that it was originally written for. I like democracy because mm -hmm. there's at least an ability to try and influence things as opposed to a complete totalitarian state. But I also recognize, and I document you know, all throughout my book, that uh, the governments are all controlled by the secret societies right. and the bloodlines who control the secret societies. And so they're kind of moving things in a direction, but they can't move it efficiently. And that's the thing they really have against Western democracy. But, you know, when you get elections that say, like, um, when you have, I'll use an older one, let's say Bush and uh, Gore, they're both uh, Gnostics, they're both secret societies, both skull and bones, and their parents right. were part of the bloodlines, the pseudo-bloodlines, as they're trying to ennoble those bloodlines with the Europeans. Mm. And so you're getting two, two options of the same thing. One moves it a little bit more quickly in, in the direction of globalism than than the other, but they're all marching for globalism. And mm -hmm. I wonder whether or not Trump was, you know, he, he just wanted more power and he went rogue and that's why they hate him so much and he's slowing down the, the globalism aspect. But understand that President Trump isn't against globalism. No. It's just that he wants the, the U.S. to have more power. And that's the same statement, and I'm not saying that he's in, in cahoots with Putin or uh, President Xi, but they're both saying, we don't like the European model of this world order. We want to have more power and control with it. And those are the tensions that are happening. So it's mm. all moving in that direction, but democracy has not been as easily controlled as what they would have liked it to have been. Yeah. Even though they're trying to pull the strings from, from the background. So, but at the end of the day, if they get control of who the nominees are, which they tend to have for the leaders of the country, then 
you know, they, they essentially are moving it in, in that direction. It's just whatever that speed is going to be. So I like democracy, but I know it's also used to promote globalism. And I also don't think that you would have globalism in the way that they, the Europeans would envision setting up world government if you had the totalitarians uh, uh, in control. In other right. words, they would try and do it through through war, which has been tried throughout history, right? And it always fails because the world's too big and it takes too much money and it takes too much time and <laughs> and eventually they lose. They need to take control over world government by having the building blocks in place. And so they need to build uh, momentum for globalism, momentum for world government, but they're going to need the universal religion to bring that about first. And you're going to need the false prophets bringing about the uh, prophecies of doom to scare everybody right. because, and as we're being prepared for with all of their apocalyptic statements, that right. if you don't convert to this religion, we're going to be destroyed from the face of the earth. And that's why all the globalists are using these transnational doctrines, whether or not it's global warming or peak oil or overpopulation or pollution, um, we can't grow enough food. Everything that they can throw at uh, the world that crosses borders and gets people pointed in the direction to run and be cattle herded into world government by the globalists, that's what they're trying to do so they can essentially do a quick coup d'etat and take over control of the world. Mm -hmm. What? So you keep talking about in your book as well as just now the universal religion is it Gnosticism or is it sort of like a Catholicism kind of um, operating under Gnosticism, like a sort of, uh, it looks like Catholicism, but it's not? What do you think the universal religion will be? I think if the, uh, the Western Gnostics uh, get their way in secret societies, they're going to create the new Babylon mm. through... Catholic Church hmm. and that's why they reestablished and the Jesuits within the Catholic Church along with Ignatius of Loyola being funded by the Montessa order which I talked about earlier and Francis Borgia mm -hmm. who becomes the third Grand Master and gets control of the Vatican banking that gets moved to Switzerland by 1570 right and they are you know they're there to deliver Catholicism into the new Babylon to become this polytheist religion from within. Huh. And so just as, you know, in first Peter chapter five, it talks and Peter's talking about writing from Babylon. He's writing from Rome. Babylon, as you take that back to Greek was a understood term for early Christians and Jewish people. Some people from the Gnostics call it the Pesher Code. What Babylon was a Pesher Code, an allegory for Rome. And just as Rome uh, has seven hills that the universal Catholic Church already sits on, mm. I think they're going to be converted to this polytheist religion and they are very sort of crazy with all the merry apparitions whether it's Lourdes or it's Fatima right. or it's Medjugorje or it is uh, the uh, apparition that Ignatius of Loyola has that 
you know, says you're going to become a soldier and you're going to convert the, the, the Roman Catholic Church through um, Jesuits. Mm. Um, and now you have a Jesuit uh, pope that's in place that's uh, rightfully recognized the happenings and the visions and the initiations of these six, uh, six to ten children, as I recall, uh, who are going to come out with these prophecies of doom. I think we should look towards that, but it's going to be a religion that denies Jesus as being the Son of God, mm -hmm. and they're going to come out with proof both from the Vatican and from the secret societies, because they have control over the Vatican, to say that Jesus did not die on the cross. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I see a lot of this playing out in, you know, secularism, uh, the far left sort of, uh, I, I mean, I feel like the universal religion could also look like what the far left is uh, touting about globalism and, you know, we're all in this together and um, meanwhile all of their policies are uh, wreaking absolute havoc on normal, everyday citizens. Understand that left-wing politics is social masonry. Mm. And it was created by the Gnostics. So it's a tool to right. lead people away from God, hmm. right? It's a tool to get into the world government and then impose their true religion. I mean, all the things that they teach about evolution, they're going to throw those aside when mm -hmm. they're ready to take control. Interesting. And so, yeah, so I think we need to be prepared for... Uh, all of the manipulation that's going on and understand where that manipulation is coming from. You know, they have control of the education system as well, yes. both inside the Catholic Church through the Jesuits and then with the creation of the Royal Society that's controlled science and education ever since. And it goes back to the creation of the seven sacred sciences and the religion and secret societies that was spawned out of it in the time of Enoch, son of Cain, and those stated goals in Masonic history were to um, not give God credit for anything, to degrade God, mm -hmm. to lead people away from God, and to honor and worship the pantheon of gods. And you see all of that in not only left-wing politics and in education today, they're doing the same goals as they were before the flood. Fascinating. Well, Gary, is there anything you want to plug while you're here? Well, yeah, I would say uh, go to my website, the Genesis6Conspiracy.com. Mm -hmm. It's www.genesis6conspiracy.com. And on there I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters on my book. So you get a good feel for the book and the subjects and see whether or not that might be the book for you. You can mm -hmm. hook over to uh, barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com or the Kindle version or get a signed copy from me. Uh, and if you want to get a hold of me, I have access there through email on my website. Yep. And, and the email that's on the website is, uh, is genesis6conspiracy at gmail.com. So it's fairly easy to remember. Genesis 6, again, number 6, conspiracy at gmail.com. And if you want information on uh, the Jesuits that I was talking about, I don't put Jesuits in my book a lot, right. but I have an extraordinary three-part series on it. Mm. I give all the basis for the creation of the Jesuits. I didn't want the Jesuit thing to 
distract from the rest of the book because there's so right. much there's a lot um, division <laughs> on that. But I got a three-part series on that for people that just watch you through step-by-step step on how they're connected to the to the Knights Templar and how they're connected to bringing about the Mary cult and the, the universal religion. 